We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome tonight if you're joining us. We just finished our prayer time and had some folks called in to the sound system at the church. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, please. Matthew chapter 16, I invite you to follow along as we look at two verses of Scripture Two verses of scripture I mentioned before that I would like to share a few issues in these two verses that we uh, didn't treat in any great detail in this latest series through the book of Matthew. So I'm going to do that this evening and hopefully provide some uh, help for you in, those, uh, in these questions. There's three issues in 16, chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Let me read them. It says this, and... And and by the way, the context here is they are in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, well, that was revealed to you from heaven, not from men. And then in verse 18, and before I read that, let me just remind you, we've already studied all the way through verse, uh, verse 28 of chapter 16. We're kind of going back to review a couple of issues now, okay? So verse 18 says, And I also, Jesus speaking, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, so tonight we're going to go over the three issues in these verses. What is the rock, the gates of Hades, which I won't spend much time on because we did that not too long ago, and then the keys to the kingdom or the keys of the kingdom. So let's begin with the first of those, the rock or the foundation stone of the church. The reason this is confusing to people, and it's been ever confusing because uh, of the common misinterpretation that this has to do with Peter, that Peter is the foundation stone of the church. Our Catholic friends will recognize that teaching as being very critical in their system of theology and the succession of the, of the bishops, so to speak, uh, popes ultimately. Um, but the reason it's confusing is because there's a play on words, Peter's name and the word for rock. They take the play on words too, I'll say it this way, too literalistically, without letting the figure of speech have its own meaning. Now, some have suggested that Peter himself is the foundation of the church, the rock here in verse 18, on on this rock I will build my church. Peter is from the word petros, a word that is a masculine noun in the Greek language and refers to a Indeed, does refer to a rock or a stone, but not a huge boulder. It fits the person that it names. Grammatically, its gender is masculine, 
and the person it names is Simon Peter. He's pretty masculine, okay? That would be a clear, uh, should be clear to us. The rock, however, upon which the church is built is not Petros. What is it? It's Petra. Petra, P-E-T-R-A. The A ending in that noun, if you come to my Greek class in the fall, or you ask Jansen, he'll tell you. What kind of a noun is that, brother? Masculine, feminine, or neuter? It's feminine. It's not Petros, masculine. It's Petra, feminine. It's a different word. It refers to a massive stone. Okay? Just, just because they sound similar doesn't mean that they're the same. Okay? There's a play on words here. And let the play on words have its, you know, have its um, effect. Uh, otherwise, it won't, doesn't work properly. So the rock upon which the church is built is a Petra, feminine, in form, referring to a massive stone, but it does not refer to Peter because the grammatical gender does not match. Now, I've used that term grammatical gender. Grammatical gender does not mean, does not necessarily mean the same thing as physical gender. You know, and today, anytime you say the word gender, even if you put grammatical by it, you're in danger of having somebody get confused and all up in arms about what are you talking about and you're, you're, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, uh, a patriarchy uh, a supporter and all this sort of stuff. Grammatical gender, not the same as, as uh, physical gender. We're very clear on both. Well, let's say this. We're very clear on the physical gender side, okay? Some of us aren't able to define what a man and a woman is. I say us generally in the world, but most of us in the church are well able to do that, um, but in terms of grammatical gender, you have a different, it's a little bit of a different concept. For example, you talk about a boat, and what grammatical gender does a boat have? It's a she. What about truth or justice? Female figures, they're in grammatically you know, thought of as a female concept. Um, and so that's grammatical gender. The, although those nouns have no gender, physical gender attached to them, they're things or concepts. But in any case, uh, some have said this is Peter himself, which is the rock, but that's wrong. That that's takes the two words and smashes them together when they don't fit together. One is a rock, one's a boulder, one's masculine, one's feminine. The second option that may be considered is that the rock is the disciples corporately. The disciples corporately. The Lord addresses Peter, however, in the singular, and he addresses him as a rock, so it cannot be that the disciples as a group are considered the rock. So that doesn't fit. This leaves for me the third and the last option, which is that the Petra rock is the truth or confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, that which God or Jesus was referring to. He was referring to Peter's confession of Christ as the Son of God. And I find it interesting that the word confession, by the way, and its concept grammatically is a feminine noun. And the word truth, by the way, is also a feminine noun, aletheia. The church is built on the confession or the truth of Jesus as the Christ. There is no other name, my friends, under heaven by which you can be saved. Okay, Acts 4, 11, and 12, the church is built on Christ. No other foundation 
has been laid except that which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And then the Bible says, be careful how you build on that foundation. You know, you're building wood, hay, and stubble, or are you building uh, gold, silver, and precious stones? The foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's speaking of their revelation. Jesus Christ himself being the what? The chief cornerstone. Obviously, he's the, the center focus and the kind of linchpin or the cornerstone, the keystone also, and the foundation stone upon which the whole church is based and built. So I think when you come to verse 18, just remember that on this rock means on this confessional rock, on this truth, Christ will build his church. He's not building his church on a man unless we say the God-man is that man. No man, no mere man, no, no Peter, no, no disciples, no other person other than Jesus Christ himself. Okay, so that's number one difficulty with this passage. Second difficulty, the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades at the end of verse number 18. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What is it? The church. I spoke on this back in September. Uh, oh, actually, not September, last year. It's already September 2020. Now that I cannot believe. That's, that's over a year and a half ago. Um, the summary that I gave was this. Taken together, we have learned this. The gates of Hades, the gates are not offensive weapons. Rather, they hold people out or keep people in. Remember, the, we talked about the gates of a prison that keep you know, raiders out or they keep prisoners in. Okay, that's what gates do. They're not offensive weapons. The gates are the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades. I made a distinction there between that and the gates of hell. But in any case, no one in Hades or hell is ever allowed to get out and afflict the church. It's not like you're to picture in your mind, okay, there are hordes of bad spirits coming out of, the, out of hell coming to attack the church, and we're going we're gonna to prevail over them. That's the wrong mental picture to have. The church does not go and do battle with these places or remove people from Hades or hell. I mean, think about it. Once somebody's, in, once somebody's died and they're in Hades, is there any getting them out? Nope. Now, there is rescuing people from going there. Absolutely. That's, that's our business. We're into that. But finally and importantly, we concluded in our lengthy study on that that the gates of Hades refers to death itself. Death cannot prevail over the church. Death cannot overpower the church. Death cannot overcome the church. No matter how strong death seems, the church cannot be conquered by it. That's what the gates of Hades are. The gates, the gate bars of hell want to swallow up every living person. But that and its power over death cannot be a match for Christ's church, even when the enemy uh, of death is wielded by the hand of Satan himself. The church will prevail. In other words, they can throw any kind of persecution at the church. They can throw death at the church. They can throw all kinds of stumbling blocks, difficulties. It will not succeed in conquering the church. And so this gives us great boldness, great assurance, and is a call to witness to the 
life, the prince of life in the midst of a dying world. We have the death-conquering message, the death-conquering messages. We'll see this resurrection Lord's Day weekend once again, okay? So that's the second of the difficulties. The third is, I'll have the most material here, and that is the keys of the kingdom in verse 19. So on this confession, on the truth of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, the Christ, the church is going to be built. Death will not prevail against it. And verse 19, Jesus says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, do you know what that means? Do you have any clue what that means? Let's try to, let's try to figure that out. Jesus says that he, I will give you... I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, the you is singular. He's speaking to Peter still. The you is singular. The singular refers to Peter. So he's going to give Peter something, and he's going to give him keys. Okay, what are keys? Well, again, we have to read it um, with the figure of speech or metaphor in mind. Uh, He's not going to give him the key to the city, you know, one of these humongous keys that they give to some dignitary that have the keys, and that key doesn't do anything because it doesn't fit any doors. It's just an honorary thing, right? He's not going to give him an actual key like you go to the key office at the University of Michigan and get the keys that you're authorized to get because you've had your boss sign the paperwork necessary for you to get the keys, right? Have you been there, Becky? Yeah, yeah, we all of us that worked at the university had to go to that key office wherever it was. In fact, I was going to the hospital um, to visit, and I decided to go down to uh, find the key and ID office to see if I could get my chaplain or pastor's ID updated. And I went down there, and they were closed. But it was in the same exact place it was back in the mid-1990s, down in the basement of Med Inn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's another place on campus where that kind of office is. And boy, they have a lot of keys over there. Yeah. But um, he's going to get the keys of the kingdom. What are keys a metaphor for? They're for authority, power, and ownership. If I were to say to you, I'm going to give you the keys to this brand new van, okay, or this brand new car you would have the authority, the ownership, the right to use and, uh, and drive that car. This fits very nicely with the Lord's proclamation in Matthew 28. When we talk about keys as authority or power or ownership, the Lord said in Matthew 28, all authority or all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. You have a very powerful power behind you. Then he so then he commissioned the disciples to, to uh, preach the gospel. Okay? Then the Lord says what will be the result of that giving of power. I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys. Keys represent power or authority, ownership. And, and then it says here's what the power is going to be able to do. It's going to make it so that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we're going to call this binding and loosing authority. The keys represent binding and loosing authority. Are you all with me so far? Okay, if you're on the YouTube, nod your head. Yes, you're with me, you're still awake. 
you haven't fallen asleep yet. Um, now, there's one, one other verse of Scripture that uses those same two words. If you just turn your Bible to Matthew 18, perhaps just one page or so forward in your Bible, in Matthew 18, verse 18, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, that's the only other verse in the Scripture that has this binding and loosing language together in it. That verse here, this verse in Matthew 18, 18, is the corporate church part of the process of what we call church discipline. Remember, if you have a brother who's unrepentant over his sin, you go to him privately. If he doesn't repent, go to him with one or two or three witnesses. If he doesn't repent, take it to the church. If he doesn't hear the church, then put him out of the church membership and let him be to you as a tax collector and a sinner. Verse 17 says, and then verse 18, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So obviously there's some contextual connection between binding and loosing and what's happening in Matthew 18, 15 to 17 regarding this matter of of whether somebody is a member of the church, a part of the church family or not. And I want you to notice also verse 19, verse 19 in Matthew 18. Again, I say to you that if two, or th- uh, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So now what, what I'm trying to get at here is, well, let me, let me develop the thought and I'll get you there, okay? This is a corporate church idea. This is how believers in the church help an unrepentant brother or sister. The end of that process for an unrepentant person is that the church is to move them out, consider them not a part of the church, and to treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. I understand this part of the process as the same as loosing. You've loosed this member from the church. You have released them, not released them, but put them out removing them from it. Furthermore, this decision to loose someone from the church, to remove them from it, if done in accordance with biblical instructions, is confirmed by heaven. There is agreement in heaven for what was done here on earth. You with me? This is why the Lord says that if two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ and ask something, it will be done by the Heavenly Father. Now let me keep going here because this is a very important notion. This is not a lightweight verse of encouragement for a prayer meeting. Okay, we just had a prayer meeting. And many times in prayer meeting, people say, you know, two or three are gathered and God will answer their prayers That's a perhaps application of this or an implication of this verse. But this is not a lightweight verse about prayer meetings. This is a heavyweight verse that speaks of the authority of a local church to make very serious decisions, very serious decisions. The church has a role in discerning who is in and who is out of the coming kingdom. It polices its membership to the best that it 
can so that its church membership reflects accurately who it believes are true citizens of the coming kingdom. That's the binding and loosing authority. That's particularly the loosing authority that we've looked at so far. We can augment our study here with other passages that talk about the concept of removing somebody from the church. 1 Corinthians 5, remember the immoral brother had to be put out of the church because he was unrepentant. 2 Thessalonians 3, remember the disorderly and lazy brothers that had to be dealt with, and eventually they would be put out of the church if they didn't address the the, uh, core of the problem. And so this has major implications for the doctrine of church membership. And and, in so doing, does not undercut the, the position of either the church or Israel in biblical revelation. What I mean by that is the church and the kingdom are separate ideas. I'll, I'll mention more about that in a moment. But I want you to notice the plurals in Matthew 18, verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth, whatever you loose on earth, and the idea of two or three in verses 19 and 20. The Lord expands the binding and loosing authority from Peter. Remember in chapter 16, I'm going to give you the keys. And those keys are going to have that binding and loosing authority attached to them, Peter. But now in verse uh, chapter 18, the Lord expands it to the whole church. It's not just Peter. Once again, you know, sorry, Peter, <laughs> you're not the first pope. You're not the first rock of the church, and you're not the one who has the exclusive access to these keys to the kingdom. You may have had them in a, in a preeminent manner at that time. You may, have had, uh, you may have used them early on in the life of the church, but that doesn't give you exclusive access to those keys. We're talking about a plurality of people, not just Peter. All true disciples are included in this authority in their connection to the assembly of believers, not as individual vigilante Christians. We're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about the church together and its corporate, judiciously exercised wisdom. So this is loosing. And I've tried to explain this at various times, and I'm not, I'm not even doing it now a justice. You have to realize when the church together says this brother or this sister is, is, is living in unrepentant sin and we have gone to them and gone to them and gone to them and they've ignored us and ignored us and ignored us, we finally make the proclamation that we have loosed them from the church. That is a deadly, serious statement. That's not like we don't like the person or that's like we don't prefer how they're living or it'd be better for them to go somewhere else, or just, just brush this under the rug. It's none of that. This is a deadly serious thing. When we have had church discipline from here in this room a couple of times in our church before, something very serious is happening. You understand? We're saying this person is acting like an unbeliever. We don't tolerate that. And that person is giving evidence that they don't belong to the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. That's very serious. That's what this loosing is about. Now, if all this is true, and I think it is, then there must exist a corresponding binding authority. What's that? If loosing has to do with removing somebody from the fellowship of the church, then what would binding have to do with? 
bringing them in. Entry into the church and thus into the kingdom requires a believing response to the gospel of Christ. So binding has to include the gospel and the gospel minister's authority to proclaim that those who believe in Christ have their sins forgiven and those who do not believe do not have their sins forgiven. Let me uh, share with you a similar some maybe sometimes been an enigmatic passage to you, but I think it connects in with this idea. In John 20 and verse 23, Jesus says, if you, receive, I'm sorry, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now this sounds like a real great verse for a, a priestly system where the priests have all the power to forgive or not forgive, and that's not really what's going on here. Uh, at all, in my understanding, if, if somebody's sins are forgiven, they are bound to the church. If their sins are retained, then they have no connection to the church, either initially or after being removed for unrepentant sin. Forgiveness of sin and retention of sin are both preached in the gospel. How do, how do we do that? We say, friend, if you believe in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven and you will have eternal life. We have the power, the binding power, to say that, and it means something. On the other hand, we say, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you will die in your sins. That's just John 8, 24. We're just repeating the words of Christ. That's the loosing side of it, if you will. So you have both power, both authorities in your hand as a Christian person, as a minister of the gospel. Now, that's also very serious. You're saying you can join the church, and joining the church by believing the gospel will mean that you will have an entrance into the kingdom. Why is that? Because Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God, which means if he is born again, he will see the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, the kingdom is holy future. We're waiting for it to come. We're waiting for Christ to come and to reign. We're going to enter through many tribulations, enter that kingdom. Uh, and, and I'll share some other verses on that later if I have time. But uh, that is a very powerful thing that we have access to as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, despite the fact that binding and loosing authority exists in the church as a corporate whole, you're with me on that, Peter did have an important role in the progress of the gospel. Okay, now I think... Similar explanations of this have gone astray in that they have assigned him the only role in the progress of the gospel. We too have a role in the progress of the gospel, even down to this day. But Peter did have an initially important role in the progress of the gospel in, in this binding role that, histor- that Peter played historically is emphasized in the formation of the church. And we can't miss it in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, he preaches, thousands are saved. In Acts chapter 3, he preaches, thousands uh, continue to come to the Lord. Uh, and there are persecutions and so on after that in chapter 4 and 5 and so on. In Samaria, when they started to receive the gospel in Samaria, the disciples sent Peter down to them, among others, and they went and, and continued to share the gospel, and uh, people in Samaria believed. And then in, uh, by this time, already churches had begun to take root in Judea because of Paul's persecution. 
of it. And by Acts chapter 9, there were churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. But then Peter again pops up in chapter 10 and 11 of Acts when he gives the gospel to whom? Remember in Acts chapter 10? A Gentile. Give me a name. No names? Cornelius. Yeah, we've got a couple people that thought of it at the last second, and then, then it's, remember we remember it once you hear the name. Cornelius. Listen to uh, Peter's summation of this great time in the history of the church later on in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 7. It says, And when there had been much discussion, or sorry, much dispute, this is about the matter of whether you have to keep the law to be saved, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, justifying their hearts by faith. That's how Peter summarized what happened in Acts 10 and Acts 11, particularly Acts chapter 10. So we can see here Peter exercising those keys in this case, binding, bringing the the Jerusalem people into the faith, bringing Samaritans into the church, bringing the Gentiles initially into the church. And we see Paul exercising those keys as he went around from Illyricum all the way to, well, from where he lived in Tarsus and Cilicia and all the way around to Illyricum and up to Rome. And he wanted to go west farther than that. And we see Peter continuing to minister around Israel and the other disciples exercising the binding and the loosing authority of the kingdom. It just occurs to me right now, you know, um, Ananias and Sapphira were an example of this. They were loosed. (laughs) They were really loosed. They died because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter exercises that in Samaria on the binding side, bringing people into the faith, but on the loosing side, Who was that fellow that he was working with uh, or or working against? Simon Magus was his name. Is that right? The sorcerer who wanted to buy the power to give the Holy Spirit. And Peter says to him, look, I I perceive you're still bound in iniquity. You're in a mess, man. You have no part or lot in this matter. He's telling him, look, you're not part of this. If that's what you're thinking, you're not in this church. You may be in some other religious organization, but not this one. All right, I move on. The binding and loosing idea relates the kingdom to the church. Okay, let me connect this for you. The keys are the keys of the kingdom. Those keys represent binding and loosing. When Peter exercised those keys, he's bringing people into saving faith, and they join the local churches. Okay, so the the two are connected together. They're they're, uh, different things. They're two separate things, the church and the kingdom. And this is very often confused in Christian thought. But the Lord said, if you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. But being born again is also a part of being a member of the church. So Peter, the disciples, and all their spiritual descendants in true churches throughout the world hold the keys to the kingdom. Those keys are what got me into the church. The keys are what got you into the church. Somebody preached the gospel to you, and you heard and you received The word you were bound, as it were, brought into the church. And now we have access to those keys ourselves to use them. How it works is that being born again enters you into this age, immediately into the church. And later, 
when the kingdom comes, you will be swept into the kingdom because you're already a regenerate person. Does that make sense? You get welcomed into the kingdom. In fact, more than welcomed in, you are the bride of Christ. You are co-reigners with Christ in the kingdom of God. That's why the kingdom and the church are connected, or how they're connected, I should say. The church is sort of a temporary dwelling place for the citizens of the kingdom until that kingdom comes, okay? So this is our little, um, this is our little castle, if you will, the church. And we're waiting for the kingdom to take over the world. So Paul can use the language of the kingdom as he speaks to the church because the two institutions are connected. They're not the same, but they are connected. For example, he says, you know, we ought to walk worthy of the kingdom to which we've been called. We're not in that kingdom, but we're certainly citizens of it. So we need to walk worthy of it. We read then, too, of conditions that will prohibit somebody from entering the church. Or make it very difficult. Uh, Matthew um, 19, uh, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or Matthew 18.3, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, do not be deceived, Paul says, because neither idolaters nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor all those different kinds, thieves, none of them will, be, will go get into the kingdom of heaven. There's the loosing. That's the, that's the saying, you're not, you're not going to be associated with the church nor with the kingdom. Uh, Galatians 5.21 and Ephesians 5 say the exact same thing. Being wedded to sin instead of the Savior is the, is the major problem. And we see this throughout the text of Scripture. But we also read of conditions that welcome or precede or ensure someone's entry into the kingdom. Uh, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom. Or Matthew 7 and verse number 21, which we looked at not too long ago in our study here. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Um, I mentioned already, Paul says to the disciples, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. Um, James chapter 2 and verse 5, there are actually quite a few verses here that you can find that uh, talk about these ideas. Um, James 2.5 is one of them that might have, we might have overlooked before. Paul, uh, Peter, sorry, James says, uh, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, even if you're poor in the eyes of the world. And then 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 11, it says this, if you be diligent to make your call and election sure, if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the disciples are not shy to talk about the kingdom because they have the keys. And the keys happen to be those that bring you into the church first and then later on into the kingdom. So while we work for the expansion of our church, we are working for the expansion of the kingdom. We're working, too, for its purity. 
for the purity of the church. The, uh, and how do we do the, how do we handle the purity? Paul says, put out that leaven, right? Put the leaven out because the little leaven leavens the whole lump. So the binding authority expands the church and the loosing authority limits its membership and shrinks it for the purpose of purification, okay? By loosing, you're removing the leaven. By binding, you're bringing in the believers, the new believers, and adding them to the church. And Jesus says to Peter, on that rock of confession of the truth of Christ, you guys are going to have this privilege to be able to have the stewardship of the church. God's given us the keys. Now, how are we going to drive it? Crazy? Are we going to follow the rules of the road? Are we going to have people come in and join us who need to join? Are we going to work toward that end? And are we going to put out people who do not belong in it? And that's our message for tonight. The three issues in Matthew 16, verses 18 to 19. And I know that was a mouthful, and it was a lot. But I enjoyed studying it, that's for sure. So if nobody else got a benefit out of it, I did. But I hope you did get some as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to have the Word of God here before us and to have not only that, but also the privilege of the access to keys and a binding and loosing authority, which is from heaven. And that as we act in as ambassadors in your stead and we can use those keys to lock the door to keep someone out or to unlock the door to bring someone in, depending on the circumstances. And uh, as long as we do that in accordance with Scripture, we know that we have your agreement and blessing. Help us to be biblical in our conduct, straight down the line here with the Scriptures, and to recognize that this is not a cutesy text. This is a really important idea. We ask for your help in it, in Jesus' name. Amen.